Let's all bow in prayer. Father in heaven, our task this morning is simple, and we ask that you keep us mindful of that, and that is to worship you for who you are and for what you've done, the same as these words which we have just sung to you in praise. Lord, may we understand the truth of it all, and may we want to be more like you and less like ourselves. Lord, speak to us through your word and encourage us through one another. But Lord, we thank you to be in the house of the Lord on your day with your word and your people. We expect great things as you are a great God. And we ask this in your great name. Amen. You may be seated. And thank you uh, for being here this morning. It's my privilege to welcome you in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ, and those of you that are uh, attending by way of live stream, we're glad to have you with us as well, and uh, for those of you that are elsewhere in the building, perhaps, glad to have you too, and if you're visiting with us, we're grateful always to have guests, we hope that uh, the service is a blessing to you, if there's any way that we can help you answer any questions, we'd sure like to do so and hope to have the opportunity to meet you. Uh, perhaps before uh, the morning is out. I would uh, mention, however, we did have someone with us this morning by way of live stream that we didn't expect. We've been praying for Dr. Bob for the past week uh, in the hospital with COVID and uh, for the last few days in ICU. But he showed up in Sunday school over live stream today with his family. And uh, has done better the last couple of days and may be stepped down into a regular room uh, tomorrow. But thank you for your prayers for him and his family. Uh, We're still praying for uh, Pastor Ross, still in the hospital after having broken his hip. um, That uh, he'll be able to either transition to a rehab facility or home uh, and get that uh, rehabilitation underway. And we've got other needs within the congregation, uh, ranging uh, from small to large. And uh, we continue to to be a praying church, uh, believing in the Holy Spirit and the care of the great physician. But I wanted to make mention of that, if for only to praise the Lord for His goodness. Uh, One announcement I want to make, and that is uh, something that you may have seen in your bulletin this morning. We're... We're now gauging interest in our next new members class. So if you've been prayerfully considering joining uh, this faith family, we have a process for doing so. And when we get enough people that want to do that, we put together a membership class. It's about eight weeks. We look like uh, it may be best to do that toward the end of July and run that into the fall or toward the fall. Uh, and there's a form, you can tear that away from your bulletin, and if you're interested in knowing when that begins, or hey, count me in, I'm, I'm as part of that uh, interest you're gauging right now, um, either put your name and email on that, and then leave it in the collection plate, we've got one at this door and one at the back door, or, and this is new, you can open your phone camera app, and hover that over that weird-looking square there, and it'll bring up a link. Click on the link, and you can do it electronically and uh, be done with it in a snap. Just 
don't do it during prayer or while we're preaching. <laughs> some things can be easier, some things can be too easy. But uh, we'd love to have you uh, join our new members class. And that's, a, that's just what it is, to, to, to give you all the questions you need answered to make an educated decision as to whether or not this is a right fit for you uh, before you join rather than after. Um, we've had a few of these uh, in the past several months, a couple of years, um, something new to the church, but uh, it has been well worth its effort, I do believe. So uh, with that said, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Esther, and we're in our fifth week in this book study. Uh, we've titled this The Unseen God, and that is because Esther's unique in that. We don't see the name of God mentioned or hear Him mentioned by anyone in the story. And uh, it's been very helpful as we've studied our way through. Uh, sometimes you only hear a little of this or that regarding uh, for such a time as this, but we've uh, committed to studying each and every verse one at a time. And we find ourselves in chapter 3 today. And this will be a little more reading than we're used to, but all of this seems to go best in one chunk, the whole chapter, 15 verses. And I'll read this. You can follow along as I read. Then we'll pray and we'll begin study in that fashion. Verse 1, chapter 3, the book of Esther. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they had spoken to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Then Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him. Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, though the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered among and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, so it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Verse 12. 
Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods." A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That is the Lord's word. Let's us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of scripture. Lord, we ask you to open to us its meaning, and we ask that you give us what is necessary to obey what we see and where we need to change. Lord, we thank you for our time at your feet. Be our teacher. Make us your students. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, every good story needs a bad man, don't they? You need a villain. And we're just introduced to the villain. We're introduced to everybody but Haman in the first two chapters. We get to chapter 3, and there he is. And when I say a good story, what I mean is a story that intrigues us, that we can relate to, one that represents the world in which we live. And the world in which we live, under the curse of sin, has its share of evil men. Uh, This one... And his character and what we read about him, what we've just learned, would almost be unbelievable if his role were not repeated throughout history as close as this previous century. The likes of one Adolf Hitler who tried to do the world uh, a favor by getting rid of every last Jew. But he's introduced here rather abruptly. Um, And when he is, we hear that he's been promoted to the position of second-in-command, what we might call a vice-chancellor or a prime minister. Uh, Daniel's uh, position at one point, uh, which would be the same as Joseph's uh, with Egypt. But this man is uh, even gets his own throne, it seems, and everybody has to bow down. Verse uh, 7 tells us, Uh, There's a little time stamp there if you're keeping track. This is some nine years after chapter 1. And it's five years since Esther was crowned queen. We talked about how the story would speed up and slow down uh, as the drama of the story requires to make the story flow. And uh, we've hit a time warp here. And a lot of times passed between end of second chapter and the beginning of the third Though the storyteller doesn't seem to make a big deal out of that. Um, Doesn't act like it's very important. What we learn in the first paragraph, and that would be, there's three paragraphs in in chapter 3 here. Uh, There are at least, well there's a handful of developments, but you could probably group them into four, uh, depending on how you want to break them down. But they all add up to a conflict that's going to boil over into 
an empire-wide scandal. It's going to be fueled by hatred, and there will be bloodshed. And as the story unfolds, we're going to learn not at all the way this was planned. There's going to be several reversals and turns along the way. But we do learn a great deal about the price of hatred in this chapter. So what I think we should do is, is kind of chart our way through those developments in the first uh, paragraph. How they shake out is described in the next two paragraphs. We'll read through those quicker. And then I want to give you a couple of points on what we learn about this idea of, of hatred because there's really no other way to describe it here. And then we'll see if any of this fits and should we try it on. All right. Number one, here's the first thing that we see take place. Xerxes promotes Haman, the Agagite, to prime minister. We aren't told why he's promoted. In fact, we just met him. We don't know anything about him. And it does appear to be consistent with Xerxes' mode of operation, where he doesn't check much or verify anything. He just gives somebody else something to do. And at the end of the day, if he likes it, we'll do it. And if he doesn't, they won't. So there, there's really no insight here, and time will only reveal the trouble that is caused Xerxes by choosing the wrong man. But if all this is necessary for God's people to be freed at the end, then he seems like he's perfect for the point. Um, let's look at another. Xerxes, Xerxes, and that's Ahasuerus, by the way. Someone else the other day said, now, you're skipping around too much. Who's Xerxes and who's Ahasuerus? I said, Xerxes and Ahasuerus, same fella. I just can say Xerxes better than the guy's name that sounds like you're fixing to sneeze. Ahasuerus. So same man. And it seems this promotion immediately produces a conflict of interest because Xerxes requires that all servants and officials bow down and pay homage to this man, Haman, that he has just promoted to prime minister. As far as we know, everyone had bowed down, but Mordecai could not. It's another dramatic line in there, you know, last week, but the plot was made known to Mordecai. Well, this week, but Mordecai did not bow down. He can't for some reason. The storyteller does not give us a reason as to why he wouldn't bow down. There's some things in here that can give us clues, though at the end of the sermon we're going to have to say we don't truly know the real reason because the book doesn't tell us. More than likely it has something to do with his Jewishness. And that's mentioned in there because they told Haman that Mordecai was a Jew as if that somehow explains why this should be. Now, to be fair, if we're talking about bowing down and whether or not Jews should bow down, there are other occasions in Scripture where Jews did bow down. And there are places in Scripture, more famously, where Jews did not bow down. And we immediately think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that was an idol, a really big one, that they were to worship with worshipful music that was played specifically for everybody to worship the big idol. That's a little different. We'll come back to that. But this probably has to do, and we'll look at this a bit more in a moment. It had to do with the fact that this Haman was an Agagite. 
And there's some backstory to that. An Agagite was a descendant of Agag, king of Amalek. Amalek was an old enemy of Israel and one of their most bitter enemies. And here's where some background would be helpful. So let me, if, if we're making notes, and, and I haven't given you any points yet, we're just kind of charting the developments as they come. But here's point number one having to do with what does this say about hatred. This tells us that hatred takes time to develop. You don't just decide one afternoon you're going to hate somebody like this. And we'll mention a little further down what the New Testament tells us about hatred. But this specific hatred was an ancient hatred. And the first time we see Amalek and its uh, interaction with the Hebrews is back in the book of, of Exodus. And that's when children of Israel are making their way to the promised land and they are attacked at the rear by Amalek. And you may remember this was the uh, battle where Moses had to hold his arms up. And if his arms went down, they would lose the battle. And if his arms went up, they would win the battle. So he had to enlist the help of a rock for him to sit on and then uh, Aaron and Hur to hold his arms up. You may have heard that as a... Uh, figure of speech to help uh, someone out in ministry when things are overwhelming, to hold the leadership's arms up. Well, that's what was going on here, and they were able to defeat them. But then in Exodus 17, this was said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. This is after the defeat. Saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, the memory's going to be blotted out, but the fight's going to be generational. That's what was said in Exodus. Now, Agag himself, because that's just the, the Amalites uh, of Amalek. But the king of Amalek, later in the story, was King Agag. And he's significant because at a specific point where the people had chosen a king, God didn't choose him, that was going to be David. This was King Saul. One of his first major battles was to take out Amalek. And they were supposed to do what with Amalek? Kill them all. And that's, that's difficult enough to wrap your head around these days trying to square a God who would authorize the wipe out of an entire people group. There's reasons for that. It's a different sermon for a different day. But that's not what they did. And when Samuel got there, he said, What's this I hear in my ears? Bleeding of the sheep. And Saul has to confess, Well, we kept back the best of the sheep. And some guys got away, but we've got the king, so we can do whatever we see fit with him. And then you get this verse that I've heard used as the basis for a message on what to do with recurring sin. And the line is, and Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. 
They never told me about that in Sunday school. I would have enjoyed that one. I think I would have said, Dad, you need to hear what we learned in Sunday school (laughs) on the flannel graph. But he took care of what God had said needed to be done. He completed the task Saul had failed to do. And that seemed to put a name with the people group that would be a thorn in the flesh again for generations. In fact, you would hear part of Persia be described as Agagites. Even in modern history, you hear of certain folks in Israel refer to some of their enemies as Amalek, though that people group has been dispersed forever. So, there's not nothing here. There's definitely something here. And you've got Saul, the son of Kish, failing to dispose of God's enemy, Amalek, and is removed from the throne. And generations down the road, it's probably safe to say that a guy named Mordecai, who's the son of Kish, would have a problem with Haman, who's considered an Agagite. And to bend the knee before this descendant of Israel's oldest foe explains, though likely does not condone, his obstinate behavior. Um, To kind of put this into maybe a way to view it, uh, there's different degrees as to which the Hebrew people were not allowed to bend the knee. What is considered worship and what is not. Uh, Heretofore, everybody bows to Xerxes. Haman hadn't had a problem with that. And it's really a, a position of authority which God put in place. He said so. And then with the passage from Jeremiah where you're supposed to pray for their welfare and submit to the authority that God put in place. Uh, the first time I was in a, a room with the President of the United States, which might sound prestigious, it's not. There were 8,000 other people in the room with the President of the United States that day. When he came out on the platform, they play hail to the chief, and what does everybody do? You stand. I didn't have a problem standing. I didn't vote for that president. I might have enjoyed it more had I voted for him and stood maybe a little bit quicker. But the reason you stand is because of respect for the office that carries authority for a place that we say, in God we trust. So it's an authority thing. It's not a worship thing. Mordecai could have got by with this. It might have been wisdom to just bow down. But that's not what he's doing, and it fits the story. So we continue and see how it shakes out. Um, Where was Mordecai's line in the sand? Again, we can't know for sure, but it seems to lie somewhere in secondary issues rather than an issue of first order. Now, to bounce this off the New Testament, Jesus did have a lot to say to the Pharisees who would strain out gnats and swallow camels. It'd be a good idea for a depravity check right here. How often do we draw demonstrative lines in the sand over things that amount to strained out gnats while we overlook camel-sized Respectable sins. Gossip. Prayerlessness. Withheld forgiveness. You name it. 
We'll justify that stuff. We might have a case for this, but we move on because the author here doesn't bring that up. Here's the third development. Mordecai's refusal causes a stir among the servants at the city gate who tell Haman. What's funny is that Haman doesn't even know this yet. These men at the gate have to tell him. And what's also intriguing, which it shouldn't be, don't you find yourself in the company of people who are all too quick to want to stir up strife? Well, that isn't right. I better go tell someone. Well, that's what they're doing here. Only happy to promote conflict. Verse 3 and 4 only dig the hole deeper. And specifically, they want to see if this behavior will stand. Will he get away with it? Isn't that usually the basis behind why we want to send something up the flagpole? We, are you going to let this stand? Is he going to get by with this? And then we learn because he said he was a Jew. So now we're almost sure this involves not a personal thing that just so happens Mordecai and Haman don't like each other. No, Mordecai is a, a son of Kish, a Jew. And Haman is an Agagite, which is a a term for saying the people that we don't have anything to do with. So Haman is filled with fury. This is the final step. And determines to destroy every last Jew in Persia. So his reaction likely has nothing to do with principle. Because usually those decisions are calculated, right? Here it has everything to do with offended pride. Why? Because it's way, way out of proportion. One man won't bow... He's going to kill them all. And you, you might have heard it said that a proud man never receives the praise he thinks he's due. That's, that's this. It doesn't matter that there are a million Jews in Persia. It matters that one of them won't bow down. That's what's eating Haman's lunch. So pride sees himself as deprived of honor. And he thinks... Since it's rightfully his, then this is how he should fix it. And there's quite a method to his madness here. So, uh, look at verse 7. Here's where we'll start looking at some things. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. The ESV gives us a explanation here that is they cast lots before Haman day after day and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month which is the month of Adar so you got a year's worth of casting lots to, to figure out how to do something so we learned that hatred takes time here we learn that hatred is often godless and superstitious You know, Hitler was superstitious. And many of the men that are the most hateful seem to be the most mad. And instead of looking for wisdom, they look for the strange. Seems to be the case here. So the second thing we learn is that hatred is often godless and superstitious. Whether the lot casting, pur as in purim, which was the feast that we know even to today in Israel where they celebrate the story we're reading now. Whether or not this was for timing his approach, because, you know, you can't go see the king 
unless he wants you to. And if you go and he doesn't, you die for it. So maybe he's casting the lots to find out when it's best to talk to the king or when it's best to kill all the Jews. Uh, we're not told. It's, it's unclear. But it's obvious that he trusts this lot casting process to give him the answer. Um, look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, and let's just kind of mark this. If you take notes, this is good. If, if, if you don't, um, you write it wherever you choose or in your brain. I remember a professor used to say, if you don't mark your Bibles, they might not mark you. It's a good word. There is a certain people scattered abroad, Haman told the king. That's true. The Jews were a certain people and they were scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples. That is a correct statement. In all the provinces of your kingdom. Here's the second. Their laws are different. Uh, yes and no. Keep going from those of every other people. Even more yes and no. They have laws, but some of them overlap. Many of them do not. So that's true and a mixture of false. And they do not keep the king's laws. That's mostly false. These people are doing a pretty good job of being upstanding Persian citizens. I mean, Mordecai's already saved the king's life. Esther, like a good girl, did exactly what was expected of her. The only difference here is that there's this one guy who doesn't bow down. So that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. No, Persia was a better place because of the Jews. So he's gone from true to true and false to mostly false to absolutely false. And that's the way you start out getting what you want from a guy who doesn't fact check. Right? Kids, whatever you do, don't, don't act like Haman when you're trying to get what you want out of mom and dad. Because good mom and dad sit through church and know that this is how it happens. Start out with true. Work your way to false. Hope they're doing something else. Not paying attention. Right? <laughs> no. So what does he do? He offers or says here, if, he, if it pleases the king, if, if this is good to you, let's kill them all. And I'll pay you 10,000 talents of silver. That's a lot of money. In fact, that amount was somewhere around 60% of the annual tax revenue of the whole empire at that point. Where is he going to get that money? When he plunders the Jews. He's basically saying, when I steal everything they've got, I'll split it with you. There's no way he could come up with this on his own. So here's the third thing about hatred. Hatred is deceitful. You make up the rules as you go when you hate people. And that's what this guy's doing. Um, hate is a liar. You, you could say it that way. Love tells the truth. And that's what's tough about love telling the truth because a lot of times when love tells the truth, it's hard to hear. People hear it as hatred and call it a lie. That's why we need to know that the Bible gets to have the final say or we're all just chasing each other trying to say, well, mine's more important or more truthful than your opinion and this or that. But the phrase here, the money is given to you because 
The king agrees and says, basically, keep the money, which was a polite way of saying, uh, don't mention it. But we read later that he does pay the money and likely on credit. So don't miss how Haman is described here as the enemy of the Jews, too. Look at the end of verse 10. Gave it to the hand of Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And what did he give him? He gave him his signet ring. And what is he going to do with that signet ring? Right into law. The mass murder of up to a million people. That's number four. Hatred ends in murder. And you don't need Esther to tell you this. You can go to the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus begins each subject by saying, You have heard it said of old time that you shouldn't commit murder. But I say unto you, He who calls his brother raka, or fool, which is a way of looking at your brother as less than you think you are. You know, It begins in hatred, and it ends in murder. Because... What he's doing there is saying, you, you, you know you shouldn't murder. I'm going to hold you accountable to the seed of murder, which is hatred. But that's the same here, and it's the same now. So, look at verse 12. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day, the first of the month, and they wrote this edict. Skip down to verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to the king's provinces with instructions to... Here it is, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, children, in one day. And then if you, if you don't need a more cold and creepy ending to chapter 3, just look at it. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What do they do after deciding to wipe out a whole group of people? They have a drink. Maybe the way uh, Pilate and Herod did when they were friends after they decided to get rid of one Jew that was a problem to the both of them. But heretofore they had been enemies. So what's in this for me? What, what, do, we, what do we do with this? Because this is a dark chapter. It's, it's, a, it's a, a horrible situation. Nothing goes right. The story's getting uh, evil. And, and it has to. It's the way this works. You need conflict before resolution. Well, we've got a conflict. First of all, this chapter continues with the complications of sin from last week. Remember we, we made that point? A lot of this you can explain, even though it would take you forever to detangle the knot. It's explained by s s past sins. Uh, not only if the people of God hadn't sinned, which was the reason why they're in exile, and wouldn't have been in Persia, or if Esther's parents and grandparents would have gone back to Jerusalem when they were allowed to do so, or if King Saul would have killed Agag like he was supposed to and all the rest of them, uh, then things might have been different, but you can't. You can't fix those ifs at this point in history. No more than you can fix the ifs in your life that we talked about last week. None of us have a perfect life and none of us have a clean white shirt. We're all stained by sin. That's why we need Jesus. All of us. 
equally as, as much as anyone else. So this is complicated, first of all, because of sin. And now that Mordecai's made his stand, whether or not he should or shouldn't have, the storyteller doesn't tell us, but because he did, everyone else is going to have to pay for him not bowing down once that was set into motion. And then, what do we do with Xerxes you know, just handing over the, the signet ring? You know, what, what if he didn't do that? What if like a good ruler, he thought his way through and, do I really want to do this? I mean, that's a lot of revenue I'm going to miss out on. Uh, that doesn't make sense either, unless he just really is that weak of a leader. And then, you know, each step of the, this, we talked about the complications of sin last time, but then abdication of power and responsibility, you know, we could have a whole lot of fun with this. If this were the point of making good sermons, taking every last little turn and seeing how the shoe fits. Who has the signet ring in America? Who gave it to him? We do. Right? Makes your vote a little more important when you think of it that way, doesn't it? Let's keep going. The better point of the chapter is this. Because the hero of the book of Esther is not Esther, Mordecai, anybody. It's Jesus. So the better point of the chapter is this. God has for more reason, far more reason actually, to act against us than Xerxes does against the Jews. Now what, what, what was the charge? And let's just say Haman's the devil himself. And he goes and he says... They don't obey your laws, and they don't worship you as good citizens, and they're worthless to you as far as getting anything done. You should just kill them all. Let's just say Haman is the devil, and let's just say that he is the accuser of the brethren, and let's just say that he daily tries to say that those Christians you spread your arms for over the cross, bled and died, are worthless to you. They still break your laws. They don't bring any revenue. In fact, it'd be in your interest just to get rid of them all. Now that actually stands up better than what we're reading here with Xerxes or Haman. But what happened? Let's just say if we were to run that in a little lab, how would it shake out? Well, it did shake out. He's actually given his son over to be killed in place of God's people. In effect, he said, do with my son what you will, but let his people go. Punish him for their sins. Destroy, kill, and annihilate Jesus, because sin must be paid for. Plunder his goods and give them to the ones who kill him. But as for my people, do not touch them. And that's the better gospel. That's the better Savior. That's the better King. That's the better everything. This is not at all the shallow thinking of Xerxes. This is the deeping, deepest thinking of it all. I mean, aside from the act of creation, God's act of redemption was worked out how long ago? Before the foundations of the world? Did he decide to make sure that none was lost? 
And we hear Jesus praying in the garden that none that you gave me will be lost, have been lost. So wouldn't you gladly bow down? If we're talking about bowing down and having a problem with bowing down because of a guy that we hate, who wouldn't bow down to this guy who would die in our place to make sure that the world is saved? To make John 3.16 possible, this guy stood in our place. So again, we'll put the two together. Everything's wrong in this chapter. Nothing in this chapter should have happened if sin wasn't part of the picture. Haman shouldn't have only not been promoted. He shouldn't have been born. There shouldn't have been any Agagites. Right? Mordecai shouldn't have brought the wrath of Persia down on the Jews for being obstinate. Xerxes shouldn't have given his ring away as if he didn't care who lived or died. There's one more thing I want you to look at here. And this is actually almost buried. Let me see if I can find it in here. I didn't write down which verse it is. This would be verse 13. Letters were sent. Everyone's to be killed in one day, 13th day, 12th month. 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, I don't know if we've got any Hebrew scholars here and it just about need to be to fact check because the calendars are different now than they were then but it almost lines up and makes the most sense that those lots that were cast and Haman who's planning superstitiously it seems like that landed on the night before Passover which is interesting because there's a lot of similarities between Purim, Passover, this going on here. I'm about to cough. Now I'm crunching ice in front of you. Excuse me. <laughs> That's kind of a habit. <coughs> The history is different. One's a long time ago in Egypt. This is in Persia. One was Pharaoh. The other is Xerxes. Problem is the same. The people of God are in exile because of their sin. And also the thing that's in common is they all expect to die the next day if something doesn't change. Now, there's a big difference between Xerxes saying all the Jews are going to die. Now later they're going to be able to fight for themselves. But with Passover, there were plagues. The last one was the firstborn's going to die. Unless, of course, you've got blood over your door, right? The blood over the door signified forgiveness of sins. The animal had to die in your place. That's going to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, which is Jesus in the New Testament. But think of it that way. They were promised deliverance after they dealt with their sin. No deliverance without dealing with sin. The same is going to be true here. 
It's actually going to be Esther that says, I know you've been fasting and sitting in ashes. We all need to do that for three days. And we need to beg God for mercy, for deliverance. Now, they're not real specific as to confession of sins and repentance. Though that seems to be implied with the fasting. They are Jewish people, of course. But that even helps us line up the story of Jesus even better. There's no deliverance from our sins without Jesus first having paid for them and our having repented over them. So I think that chapter 3 of Esther is the perfect place to remind ourselves. Yeah, life is really messed up. It's so tangled with sins, our sins, sins on purpose, sins by mistake, other people's sins on purpose, other people's sins by mistake. But it's not just, oh, Jesus came to die on the cross and it'll all work out in the end. No, it's Jesus came to die on the cross and it'll all work out in the end for those who repent of their sins and trust Him by faith and deal with their sins when they ask for deliverance. Let's make sure we're not guilty of wanting deliverance without repentance. Now even the faith that it's required to ask forgiveness is given to us as a gift by Jesus. Again, a mystery of the gospel. But right here, I think we're to look at it this way. One fellow's casting lots superstitiously. They fall on a night to bring to everyone's memory. You repent, and I'm coming. I will deliver you as promised. So with that said, let's just bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you for the book of Esther. And what sounds like an impossible story with a miraculous ending. Lord, the hero of the book of Esther, as is the hero of the other 65 books is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one Lamb of God as though He were slain. Lord, we thank You for Your forgiveness. But we implore You for the attitude of repentance. Lord, it's always the sin that You're here for. And Lord, we need to cough it up. If you're here to take away the sin of the world, we need to hand it over. So Lord, I ask that you bless ears that can hear and eyes that can see. And Lord, would you be so pleased in your glory to bring someone home to the gospel, to saving faith through a book like Esther that helps us see even clearer your story of grace. Lord, we thank you for another Sunday to sit together in church. We ask that you seal these things to our hearts and our heads. Give us somebody to tell them about these things. And Lord, may they make us more useful to your kingdom. Lord, we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.